Welcome to Merrick's Experts, the podcast that provides analysis of current affairs in China. Not least since China's industrial policy made in China 2025, it is clear that China aims to be self-sufficient, which means less dependent on other, mainly Western countries. China's goal of self-reliance hinges to some degree on a number of key technologies that are dominated by a handful of companies based in the US and like minor countries, for example in high-end electronic components. How does the Chinese government want to break these so-called choke points, and how is it setting up its innovation system to ensure its technological independence? My name is Johannes Heller-Jon, and to discuss these questions, I'm joined by Michael Laha, Alexander from Humboldt Foundation German Chancellor Fellow at Merix and former Senior Program Officer at the Asia Society Center on US-China Relations. Together with Jerome Kronewangen-Lau, Head of Program Science, Technology and Innovation Policy at Merix, he's working on an upcoming paper on the issue of the innovation chain in China. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you, Johannes, for having me. Michael, can you give us a short introduction into the innovation chain? Sure. Uh, so the innovation chain is a concept that the Chinese government has adopted from the world of innovation studies, science and technology studies, and business systems to help it organize its drive for becoming a science and technology superpower. And so the idea of this innovation chain basically sees innovation as a process that can be lined up along a series of steps that begin with basic research that takes place in the lab at a university or other type of research organization. There, more fundamental questions are being researched. And that work might progress towards a publication or a patentable concept. And there, it might move even further, where you might start playing around as an innovator with prototypes that need to be tested in the field and then tested in the market until a good product can finally be scaled up. And what the innovation chain does is, is bring these commercial and practical considerations closer to the earlier stages of research by laying out steps to connect them. And that's very attractive for the Chinese government because the Chinese government is eager to extract not just economic, but also strategic value out of its research spending. And so the innovation chain conceives science and technology in the spending on it is not necessarily science for science sake, but research for its utilitarian outcomes. So the innovation chain gets treatment uh, for the first time in an important 2060 policy called the Innovation Driven Development Strategy. This is a high level document issued by the Chinese Communist Party Central Committee and the State Council to help identify major trend and issues. And one of the important ones is, of course, China's drive for technological self-sufficiency, endogenous domestic innovation, and how to gain an advantage in emerging technologies such as AI and quantum technology. Uh, innovation chains also gets brief mention in the 14 five-year plan. The idea is to raise the overall effectiveness of innovation chains. And then also Xi Jinping references chains in general, but innovation chain in particular in his report to the 20th National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party. So it's gotten consistent high-level treatment in Chinese policy discourse. Can you go a bit more into detail why China is using this framework of the innovation chain in, in its policies? Yeah, so I think the reason uh, the Chinese government is using this framing of the innovation chain is because there is a recognition that there are certain 
deficiencies in the uh, research and innovation enterprise in China that the Chinese government has identified. And one of them is that too little of the basic science work reaches the market. There might be uh, cases where a researcher in a university is working on an important technology, but that technology never reaches the market because uh, there's never this docking or connection or communication with a company that has the ability to commercialize it. That's one example of where innovation chain thinking, so the idea of bringing the more fundamental basic science researcher in contact with the market uh, might help alleviate dependencies um, in China on certain technologies. So it's hard to imagine that this is only a thinking specific to China. Um, does this innovation policy thinking differ from uh, how it is conceived in other parts of the world? So first of all, it's important to point out that the emphasis on trying to get more applications or commercial products out of research spending is a trend that's underway in many parts of the world. So for example, the United States recently passed legislation to create the so-called tech directorate within the National Science Foundation, which uh, has a mandate to accelerate the transfer of science into the market. And then Germany is creating a special agency called DATI, uh, the German Agency for Transfer and Innovation. This agency is also designed to help institutions of higher education in Germany bring research to market. What makes the application of the innovation chain special in China is how broad the effort is and its particular connection to China's self-sufficiency drive or technological self-reliance. So it's worth focusing on this last point a bit. So in China, there's been for many years a growing concern that it is dependent on technologies from outside of the country, especially from innovative places such as Japan, South Korea, but especially countries such as the United States and to a degree Europe, where this dependency is being increasingly used as leverage in particular through the imposition of export controls. And so one key technology, think semiconductors, for example, are a special example and have traditionally so far been thought of as a supply chain issue. So there's the word chain is here again. So the issue of having access to various components uh, that are only available uh, in the United States and other countries. But the Chinese government has begun to zoom out and identify other chains and this innovation chain. So the ability to domestically develop something from a very basic setting and move it on towards marketable products that this all can and should happen in China without too much input or dependence from other countries. That's part of the goal in bringing innovation thinking to the strategic anxiety of self-sufficiency and to a degree also choke points. So if we go uh, further down to the nitty-gritty level, how might we observe the, the innovation chain thinking in action in China? That's a great question. So there's numerous reforms and initiatives that try to implement innovation chain thinking or innovation chain framework. So one really interesting one is a policy released by the Ministry of Education this summer. It's called A Thousand Schools, 10,000 Enterprises. And the stated goal is to deeply integrate the innovation chain and the industrial chain. And there the idea is, is to take universities 
and encouraged researchers that work there and encouraged them to engage with industry and companies through, for example, licensing the technologies that they've developed in the university setting to companies that exist outside of the university setting. And so this is one of many initiatives underway, spearheaded by example through the Ministry of Education. Our report uh, covers three areas of support for innovation in China um, that I'd like to recap here. The first one is the National Key R&D Funding Program in China. The second is the state key laboratory system in China. And finally, we also cover zoning policies in our forthcoming paper. So one important thing to point out is that the story of innovation in China is told through ever-growing numbers. The number of publications coming of Chinese universities or labs and authored by Chinese researchers is increasing every year, and China has actually taken the first spot over the past few years. But underneath that story of rising, ever-rising numbers is something else going on, which is a kind of process of consolidation and more careful sifting through the innovation system to help it align with these new strategic needs, in particular self-sufficiency. So the National Key R&D program in China was actually created pretty recently uh, in 2016, funding-based uh, support uh, for research and uh, R&D in China. Uh, was previously uh, run through a series of different programs, including the so-called 863 program and the 973 program. And those were all placed and consolidated into one larger overarching program called the National Key Projects Program. And what's really particular about this is, is that programs that previously separately funded basic, more applied research have now been bundled into one and the way the program's purpose has been communicated to the research community is that the innovator is not just supposed to think about basic science, but also think about its ultimate application. And so the funding program and its goals and its mandates reflect that. Um, and that is a kind of innovation chain thinking that bundles these different steps that have before been somewhat discrete and separate into one. You mentioned in uh, the upcoming research that you're working on with your colleague, uh, Joan Grunewagen-Lau, uh, that you also are looking at uh, key laboratories. Uh, could you go into detail on that as well? Sure. So the state key lab system in China is one of the most important institution-based funding programs in China goes back to the 1980s, but it's also going through a process of consolidation. So officially, there's about, according to official statistics, about 530 of them. The best available list of them was created um, by experts at the Center for Security and Emerging Technology at Georgetown University, where Emily Weinstein and her authors pulled a list together of about 470 or so. The rest, we don't know exactly what they are. And this number has stayed relatively constant over the past few years, even though the Chinese government had put out a goal to boost this number to 700 by 2020. So that's already in the past, and this goal has been missed. And what's going on is, is that 
the state key laboratory system is being scrutinized and is going through a process where the central government has asked heads of these institutions to communicate how their work is relevant for national strategic needs and how it can address key technologies. And so there's a tension between a desire to grow the system, increase the number of these labs, but at the same time also realign them for new and emerging strategic needs. And all of these goals have been anchored in a high level of policy documents and reiterated since. So this is clearly a priority for the Chinese government. Can we so far see whether these policy changes and this consolidation is having an effect or is it uh, business as usual with a new frame on top? I think that's a really good question. And I think in many ways, it's too soon to tell. I think one thing that's sure is that there is a broad effort to shift the emphasis towards commercial outputs from traditional metrics that uh, that have been followed and sought after things like the number of publications. And I think shifting this mindset in China is probably going to be a long and difficult process. Taking this mindset now and, and looking at, at Europe, North America, um, what are the implications for decision makers, for, for research organizations here? Hmm. So I think in many parts of the world, but here in Germany, for example, as well, there is a debate on how to bring China expertise or China competence, how it's referred here, to the debate on research collaborations with China. And I think where we've landed on this is that the answer is quite simple, that through consistent and regular monitoring of policy and institutional changes in China, our understanding of how the Chinese government uh, and its aspirations may or may not impact innovation in China helps reinforce that um, understanding. So for example, I mentioned earlier that uh, state key labs are currently going through a process of reorganization And what this process has triggered is the organization of conferences and other modes of communication by members of state key labs to show how they are positioning themselves with new strategic needs of China. That this process is ongoing should be a nudge or a clue to uh, European or American partners to approach their Chinese collaborators and ask them uh, how they are positioning themselves in this process of reorganization that's currently ongoing. So do you think that this focus on innovation chain will make collaboration in the research field, but maybe also in the business field, more likely or more complicated in the future? I think this progressive implementation of the innovation chain to the extent that it is successful, because I think it's mostly still aspirational and it's a concept that's coming out of the policy world that may trickle down into the actual work of scientists, researchers, um, and other kinds of innovators. It raises another risk factor in the debate on collaboration 
with China in areas of research and technology development. So if the shift currently underway is, is to nudge innovators in China towards commercial outputs rather than things like publications, then that's important when trying to define shared goals with your partner in China. Um, when previously a shared goal might have been producing a publication or other kinds of output that becomes openly accessible. And now the shift is towards a more commercial um, output, then the goals have shifted. And that is something that should be factored into any uh, collaboration that is being contemplated with a Chinese partner. Thank you very much for your time and your insights, Michael, into your ongoing research. Thank you very much, Johannes, for having me on this podcast. If you want to know more about Michael's research, you can visit his profile at our website, merix.org. Thank you all for listening. Until next time, goodbye. You have been listening to Merix Experts, the podcast from the Makato Institute for China Studies in Berlin. If you want to learn more about our work, please visit us at merix.org.